On today's episode, we discuss when air hits your brain. We are joined by Mr. Andrew F. Alalade, who is a consultant neurosurgeon in the UK. He shares with us his journey to becoming a neurosurgeon, as well as sharing tips with doctors and young doctors-to-be who desire a career in neurosurgery. He trained at the University College London and has also served developing core competencies for the Academy of Medical Royal College's curriculum and training programs. Andrew is also a fellow of the Royal College of Surgery, Neurosurgery, as also a fellow of the European Board of Neurosurgical Surgery. He mentors young doctors and medical students in and around the UK and was also a council member of the Association of Surgeons in Training and an executive member of the British Neurosurgical Trainee Association. Please enjoy the episode. So welcome, Andrew, to A Slice of Health, um, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. No problem. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks for the opportunity as well. Thank you. Um, so today we're talking about, um, the, the topic is when the, when the air hits your brain, um, talking about neurosurgery, your journey into being a neurosurgeon, um, and also being a black man in healthcare. And, you know, we're sort of at a critical juncture in history at this moment with, you know, the death of George Floyd and the protests that have been going on around the world. Um, and I think it might be great for our listeners just to know if you as a black man in healthcare have encountered any racial bias or if you feel that there's any racial bias institutionalized in healthcare in the UK. Um, yeah, it's it's a great thing you mentioned this um, today, you know, during this interview, because I, I was just having a chat with my kids earlier on. I've got two kids, 11 and 7, and um, they had a chat about this in school today. So this was all we spent the last hour or so talking about. Wow. And, um, and it's, it's just difficult trying to have a conversation like this with kids. Um, coming back to my um, experience, I can remember a few experiences in training. Luckily, I've worked in places where um, I've been supported. I've worked with great colleagues. Um, but yeah, I can remember one, two patients. Um, as, a, as an SHO in neurosurgery, I can remember a patient who swore at me and did say, oh, you know, go back to your country, blah, blah, blah. And um and it was it was a tough one because I just kind of excused myself from the room and told the nurses that oh you know it would be better to get someone help else to um, help manage the patients you know that I could get someone else rather than be involved because it would just be difficult for me. Um, and then there was another instance where a patient had said they didn't want to um, see me in clinic where I was supposed to see the patient but then they put their notes off um, and said they would rather see someone else and the my senior colleagues were quite supportive they did say oh you know try to act professional it was a, it was a tough one to swallow at the time but luckily since then I've not had any more um, unpleasant episodes like that and you know and even if you feel that um, you know, someone distrusts you or someone's not opening up to you as much as they would rather do to another doctor. You just take it on the chin and act professional. As the years went by, um, as a microaggressions, as a just um, underplayed emotions, it's difficult to say, but I can remember a few instances where um, as a senior registry in London, we're talking to um, like a patient and for some reason they would maybe look at the ANE register or someone else of a different color because they kind of expect the person to be the one who's going to be operating on them rather than you. You know, such, such um, you know, the little things like that that you get to pick up. Um, but yeah, but you 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 just get used to it and you and you move on and it's all about you know 
giving the good good account of yourself and doing your job really well. It's it's taught me to leave no stones unturned and to do a really good job because at the end of the day, it's really your job that would that will vindicate you. That's that's like the way I look at it. So you put in a bit more effort into how you're relaying the scans, how you're, you know, your surgeries, your documentation, you make sure everything is done right because you do not want anything to come back and haunt you later. But overall, it's, it's my, my career hasn't really been, been bad. I was um, mentioning earlier in the, the first recording, um, the one that we had to go off, that when I, um, Came when I got my exams, my fellowship exams. There was a neurosurgeon who contacted me out of the blues, and he's a black British neurosurgeon like myself. I'd kept track of the neurosurgeons over the years, and I knew that there were very few that that were black in the UK. Um, because sometimes there were times maybe I felt I needed to reach out to someone who had walked the same path as myself. Yeah, and I knew there weren't many like me. I'd I'd done a kind of mental count at the time, and I thought they were about five, six. Um, so I'd reached out to this guy. We hadn't really communicated much, but when I got my exams, he sent me an email and he said, "Oh, um, congratulations on your FMCS exams. Um, I'm so happy for you." Um, but I'm currently going through a court case at the moment, some medical legal stuff. And this is what happened to me. So um, make sure you, you get a job with nice colleagues, people who will be able to help you if there's any problems, try not to fall out with anybody. And if there are any problems, make sure you report to the GMC as soon as possible. Which, which kind of got me a bit walked up. You know, there's a bit of trepidation with that. And I kept asking myself for weeks after that, why did he get into trouble like that? Was it because he was black? What was he trying to tell me? You know, um, we never really had an elaborate chat afterwards. But, but those little things, they kind of leave small marks, small scars, things that you have to think over, you know, years after. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I, I can completely relate with what you're saying in terms of the GMC, because it's sort of, um, especially as a, as a black doctor, there's so many cautionary tales of, you know, people that look like us being used as scapegoats or um, people who look like us being, you know, marginalized and being more likely to be investigated by the GMC or more likely to be reported to the GMC by colleagues and um, employers as well. Was that gentleman, um, is he still practicing surgery now? Is, is, has he gone back to his career? No, I think he's left now. I think he's left. Um, life of me, I don't know where he is at the moment, but I know he's not practicing in the UK at the moment because I did try to look for him afterwards and I haven't heard from him since. Wow, wow, wow. Gosh. Okay, okay. Well, we'll move on from that um, quite somber note um, and just talk about your, your, your own journey into neurosurgery. When did, you, when did you decide that you wanted to do neurosurgery? Had it always been an interest of yours? Yeah, always. So I, I tell people this because this comes up very, very often. Um, for me, it started when I was a teenager. So specifically when I was about 13 years old, um, high school, science class, um science teacher was talking about the brain about the spine it just seemed all fascinating to me i just i just loved the whole topic the subject the fact that the brain and spine was just one massive network of neurons that coordinated and controlled everything um at the time there were a few popular neurosurgeons you know most notable was ben carson you know everybody knew about him at the time i'd read his book i'd come across his book i'd read it i even had a picture of him on my wall as with some other um medical um you know experts at the time um yeah so that was it I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon i could remember my yearbook at the end of the school year um, that was my final year in high school. 
I'd also retain, oh, I want to be a neurosurgeon. I didn't even know what it was all about. But um, years later, when I met up with some high school colleagues and they brought the yearbooks out and they showed me, you know, it, it was just quite, quite exciting to see that year. I kind of predicted it at the time. Um, however, when I, was in, when I was in med school in uni in my second year, my dad got diagnosed with, um, with a brain tumor. Oh, wow. um, so he was, um, he had traveled or he was staying away from the family at the time because he was working in another, um, in another region of the country. And um, we just got a call someday that he collapsed and was mumbling just gibberish. Just he was confused. He didn't know where he was. So he was taken to the hospital. He had a scan. Um, it showed it was a brain tumor. Luckily for loss, I didn't know at the time, but luckily it was a benign brain tumor. Um, he had to go for surgery. We were so scared for about three weeks before the surgery. Every day was was just packed with anxiety, packed with fear, packed with um, uncertainty. We just didn't know what was going to happen. So he had a surgery, and I can remember contacting the neurosurgeon um, and emailing him and saying, oh, do you have any tips or any advice on how to be a neurosurgeon? Really? And I, I, I kept that email. I've still got the email to, today. So my dad had his surgery. He was fine. He came back home. He's done well. Um, he's had follow-up for several years. And down the line, I went along with my dad to one of his clinic consultations. This is now about 10, 15 years after. And had a face-to-face catch-up with the consultant neurosurgeon who operated on him at the time. And that was a really good meeting because he was so excited to see me. He took me around the hospital, introduced me to the radiographers, to his other colleagues, to the receptionist. And we're like, this was the young dude who emailed me when his dad was here, you know, years ago. And now he's a, at the time I was a neurosurgery registrar. Yeah. He, he was so excited, you know, introducing this neurosurgery registrar who had kind of achieved his childhood dream or was on his way to achieving his childhood dream. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite, quite, I, I feel quite happy when I think back at that particular day. Yeah. That is, that is really interesting. And um, the way things sort of worked out in terms of, um, you know, your dad's diagnosis, but then also you then finding somebody that you could actually ask, you know, for advice from and somebody that was actually open in responding to you as well. Because I can imagine a lot of people would not want to reach out to ask for that kind of advice um, because they feel that they might not get that kind of response. So what would you say to somebody that, you know, in in a in a young position who has read Ben Carson's books, you know, gifted hands and, and all the lot and wants to do that in terms of their career in medicine, but they're afraid that they might not get a response back. What kind of advice would you give them? I think you've just got to reach out. That's yeah. you, you've just got to reach out. Nowadays it's even so easy. Yeah. Um, and um, oftentimes I look at my Facebook, my LinkedIn, my Everything, Twitter, and you get messages from junior colleagues, people who want you to mentor them. And I find it difficult to say no. And the reason why, the reason why I find it difficult to say no is because I was like that years ago, you know? I was that young, starry-eyed little kid just with (laughs) ambition, with dreams and I reached out. It was one of the first emails I sent. It was my Yahoo email, which was, which I don't really use anymore. But I, I've still got the email. And even when I came back to the UK and I was looking for my first job, I just Googled as many neurosurgeons as I could find and just emailed them and asked for help in terms of what job should I apply for. I didn't get a lot of responses at the time, but I reached out and it's, it's 
such um, similar episodes have happened even later on in my career where sometimes I've needed some advice or needed um, suggestions on what to do next or what should I do. And sometimes I just reach out to people. You are not sure of the reaction you're going to get, but, you know, would you now say you're not going to do it? Because you're definitely sure of the outcome if you do not reach out to anybody, which is a zero percent success rate. Yes, that's 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 the minimum. That's the worst it can be. So yeah. if you reach out, who knows? Two people, three people. If you reach out to a hundred, who knows how many people will reach out? So at least you've got to take the bull by the horns and and go out and speak to someone. Yeah, and thankfully, humanity is not not that bad <laughs> there's some good there's some good people out there you know there might just be someone who has had a happy day and your name pops up in his mailbox and he or she reply, uh, decides to reply yeah 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 that that is really interesting and i think that that is something that people really ought to remember as well that you know if you don't try then that's the only time that you're guaranteed a you know 100 percent failure rate um but if, if you do try and cast sort of your seed amongst many wolves as one might be able to get back and um, get back to you and um so just tell us a bit about your journey then so in terms of you know going to going to medical school so where did you go to medical school yeah, so I went to medical school in Nigeria. I was born in Wales, actually. So I was born in South Wales. Okay. Um, spent my first couple of years, um, Cardiff, Newport, um, lived for a while in Plymouth, on Plimpton, yeah. um, and London. And then my dad was like, yep, we're going back to Nigeria. Let's go. We're moving back. Um, yeah, so we went back to Nigeria um southwestern part of nigeria to be precise finished up the rest of my um primary school went to high school there went to a military school which was a military school kind of linked with the nigerian army so you graduated from that and you automatically went into the nigerian army that's how it was but then i signed out of it because i wanted to do medicine i'd always wanted to do medicine um, so I, I didn't want to continue with the kind of military career pathway. So I was one of nine people out of about 172 um, military um, graduates at the time um, and went and wrote the university exams and going to medical school. Um, initially, my plan was actually to go to the States, um, but by the time I got in the I don't think the, um, what they call it, the admission fees were just pretty much sky high. And my parents were like, nope, you know, you're just going to continue with um, medical school here, university education here. So I did that, um, going to medicine, finished up, um, did a year as a house officer, and then came to the UK, continued um, foundation training, um, did a couple of SHO jobs in Glasgow, um, west of Scotland, and then in Leeds. And then 2009, I applied to neurosurgical training. There's a bit of a funny story, that one, because the first time when the applications came out, they said ST3, and there were four applications in the country. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to get one of those. Come on, four. You know, but I had a senior colleague who's, um, uh, she was a year ahead of me. She's a consultant up in Liverpool now. And she was like, no, 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 come on. I've, 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 seen, I've seen you answer questions. I've seen you do stuff. I'm sure you'll be able to um, nail it. Just give it a shot. But I tell you, I sent in my application half-heartedly. And my, my, my thinking then was, you know what? Even if you do not get in, you've still got a year to plan and prepare a game so i was really thinking that i would just apply again next year hopefully brush up my cv a bit more yeah and then get get in the next year but then a few weeks later i got an email saying you'd been shortlisted wow um now now there's one part i missed out two days before no yeah, yeah, that was it. So, so, so two days before the interview, um, 
we got notified that the numbers had increased from four to nine. So as they're feeling a bit hopeful, yeah, I was like, okay, so they're not just four jobs at SD3 level, they're nine jobs. Hmm, okay, okay. You know, maybe maybe the big man up there is beginning to smile on Andy, you know? So went for the interview, um, and it was a really good interview. It was really good. Like every every station was so good. And this is now how many years later? This is well about this is about 10, 10 years or just over 10 years later. I honestly do not think I've had an interview as good as that one ever. And I've had so many interviews since then. But that just stood out. It was really good. Um, so yeah. So I got an email later that I'd got shortlisted, I'd got a training number in neurosurgery, and I was going to be starting in London. Um, exciting times. So I I can remember calling the, I don't know where the email came from. I've still got the email as well. But I can remember calling the number at the bottom of it. And I kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure you got this right? Are you really sure? And the man on the other end of the phone was just, I'm sure he was just like, who's this? Who's this crazy guy? You know, because I just kept asking, are you sure? Are you really sure about this? Are you sure? Are you sure you sent Andrew Alala Day? Is this really for me? You know, I kept I kept saying it over and over. And yeah, so came down to London. Um, London was divided into two. So there's the North Thames, there was the South Thames. I chose the North Thames, did my rotations. Um, so worked at the Royal London. I worked at Queen's Hospital in Rumford. I worked at um, Great Ormond Street. I worked at Queen Square. Um, final year was chief register in Queen Square. Wanted to do score base, um, so started to do the score base rotations. Um, yeah, and then I did my exams, SD7 passed. Um, and then started thinking of how would I get a consultant job. Decided to do a couple of fellowships, so I'd targeted the, the subspecialty areas I really wanted to improve my skills on and I felt these were the areas I loved in neurosurgery. Um, so I got an opportunity to do um, a traveling fellowship with um, an American neurosurgeon in New York who's known for some anterior score based work and does a lot of minimally, uh, minimally invasive um, procedures. And it goes to what you were saying earlier about do you reach out to people? And I'd heard him present some years before that. And I just went up to him, introduced myself, um, told him I'd monitored some of the projects over the years, things he had done, things he had um, worked on, some of his work. And he gave me an opportunity to come and work with him. Um, so I kept that and I, I kept in touch with him for about three years. So by the time I finished my training, I just told him, oh, now I've got an opportunity to come and work with you. Um, I would want to come and do a fellowship with you for six months. So I went there, did a fellowship with him for six months, um, and then went to Australia for a year. So I did a school base uh, fellowship in Australia. That was in Brisbane, which was really good, nice weather. The only drawback was that I didn't go with my family for, you know, certain reasons, work-related reasons on my wife's side and because of the kids' school. Um, so that was me out in Brisbane for a whole year um, and did quite a bit of vascular as well. So that was good. Um, stretched my skills and expertise a little bit. And then I had to come back to the UK and it was tough because with neurosurgery, there was now um, uh, circulating stories that, oh, there were no jobs in the UK, no jobs. It was tough. So I came back and I did um, a fellowship in Liverpool for a year before I now finally got appointed at Preston in the Northwest. And that's, that's pretty much been the story of my life, yeah, neurosurgery-wise. That, that, that is... Um... That, that is quite interesting. And I think that that really goes to show in terms of 
you know, getting experiences and exposures, like you said, in terms of reaching out to someone and saying, you know, can I come work with you and, you know, or shadow you, observe you. And I think maybe sometimes as well, the reason sometimes don't get those opportunities might be because sometimes they don't try to seek them out or maybe they don't, you know, put themselves in a position to be rejected, but actually sometimes you're actually putting yourself in a position to get sort of a stepping stone um, going forward. Um, and what kind of encouragement would you give to young people who, because I know, you know, there, there's so many black children who have read Ben Carson's books. Um, I read all of them when I was a teenager because, you know, there, there are only so many jobs that you can do in, yeah. in, a, black, in a black household. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, about, about 20 years ago, there were only a few things that you could do. And so Ben Carson, you know, was one of the things that, you know, a lot of our parents encouraged us to read. And so many of us um, were encouraged to pursue medicine and some to then pursue neurosurgery as well. But it's not to say that it's not without its obstacles. And so many of us have, have faced, you know, different obstacles along the way. Um, and that might be because of race, gender, um, social economic status, or just lack of opportunity in the environment that you're in. So what would you say to, let's say, maybe a 16-year-old who is, um, well, they're not doing GCSEs this year because of coronavirus. Um, but maybe, you know, a 15-year-old that might be doing their GCSEs next year and thinking about, well, maybe trying to apply to medical school um, and thinking about neurosurgery. What kind of advice would you give them? Um, yeah. My advice might not necessarily, it's going to be twofold. It might not necessarily be the most popular one. So a couple of years ago, there's, there's this list of 11 things that went viral some years ago. And it was like the 11 rules of Bill Gates, something like that. 11 rules of Bill Gates. And the first one was life is unfair. Get used to it. And the first time I saw that, it really annoyed me. I was like, why would you say life is unfair? Get used to it. But then I went over that statement again and again. And what I, my new interpretation of it was like, in life, there will be disappointments. Um, nobody is really going to have a challenge-free life. But you have to make sure that those challenges do not overcome you so they could help in defining you they could help in refining you but they shouldn't overcome you mm -hmm. so you see those challenges and you shouldn't just give up and say you know what or i can't see any black neurosurgeon in the uk so it means i'm not going to be a neurosurgeon no mm -hmm. you know it just means that take a few steps back have a strategy have a contingency plan. There are going to be several ways of achieving this. And it's not just by exercising your IQ. You know, sometimes you've got to exercise your EQ, your SQ as well, your emotional quotient, your social quotient. You've got to reach out to people. That's one thing that we've, you know, we've said kind of repeatedly today. Um, so the different ways in, um, in pursuing a goal yeah um and it's not just you see something challenging and you're like no and now i was talking with my wife the other day and i said there was one time in my career there was one time where i nearly gave up mm. and i still remember it very clearly and that was in 2008 i, I, I was an sho i hadn't got a number then but we had just had my, my first child, my daughter. And I, I stay getting scared because I was like, are you going to make neurosurgery the one and only thing and not think about your family? Because you need to think about your family. Now you've become a dad. Um, and that, that scared me a little bit. And I stay, I... I stay having second thoughts about it all. I was, I was thinking, should I apply to something else? Should I change my mind? You know, but I just knew that if I changed my mind five, 10 years down the line, I wouldn't be a happy man. And I just kept going. But I still remember then that, you know, things nearly changed at that moment because I was scared of how I would cope. Mm. 
Uh, my family have been really helpful. Um, I've got a good support network. My family, my siblings, my wife, my kids. And sometimes when you feel the lowliest of the low, they're just there to help. So it's always good having a good support network. People who would speak some sense into your head when you want to give up. You know, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that is, that, that's really great. And I'm so glad that you touched, touched on um, having moments where you want to give up because that is reality. That is, that is what life actually is. You know, you're pursuing a dream and then there's a stumbling block and you're like, okay, is this where I call it quits or do I keep going? And having people around you who believe in your dream as well, because sometimes the people that are around you might not believe in your dream and they might just be like, who does he think he is or who does she think she is in terms of trying to reach this goal. Um, but having people around you that really encourage you is so, 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 so important. And in terms of neurosurgery, um, as a career in itself and as a specialty in itself in medicine, um, what unique things do you think neurosurgery has as opposed to sort of other, maybe, maybe specifically also other surgical specialties um, that makes it so different and so unique? Um, yeah, so dexterity or those hand-eye coordination, we all know that that's for all surgical specialties pretty much. Um, to, uh, to a certain degree, maybe more when you're fitting on someone's brain and you know that any small misstep could cause sinister consequences. Yeah. Um, that's, that's one. So it's a, it's a certain, it's a different type of pressure. Yeah. And, um, one thing I've been grateful for belatedly is the fact that, like I told you earlier, my dad had a brain tumor. So that allows me to put myself in the same situation the patient and his family members or and her family members will be in as well. And sometimes I do mention it to them that, listen, I've been there. Um, and, and I understand how you feel because, or at least I can try and understand, you know, maybe not understand totally because um, my dad's brain tumor was a benign one. So yeah. we were lucky in that regard. But sometimes that's, that's what patients and their family members want to hear um they just want to hear from someone who's empathetic someone who is willing to come down to their level yeah um what else about neurosurgery is different communication is a big thing in neurosurgery whether with your theater staff whether with your junior colleagues, whether with the patient communication, there's there's a lot hanging on to every word. Just the wrong word, just the wrong word verbally or a wrong word in a letter could lead to different interpretations. So you you've got to be very, very careful. Um that's 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 another thing and then uh, the third thing i would just want to say is when you do for some reason a lot of people um are so scared about the brain understandably so and even other medical specialties people who are not neurosurgeons or who are not neurologists um, once it's something to do with the brain everybody gets really scared because the brain is maybe up apart from the heart it's the one organ in the body you tend to be very very scared of so when there's something wrong with the brain everybody kind of loses it and you've got to always remember that you you just need to and it was something i learned in my early years as a as a junior register when i started being on call and holding the blip is it's it's like the way a lawyer is supposed to be able to argue his or her case quite quickly yeah elo eloquently and effectively 
um, that's kind of the same way for a neurosurgeon where you have to make life or death decisions sometimes yeah. and really quickly as well. You've got to think quickly. You've got to implement plans on time and efficiently to get a good result. Yeah. Um, so it, it did take me some time to kind of get on top of that as a junior register. But over the years, I have noticed, you know, that my decision making has just improved significantly. And you, you know it as well when you get good feedback, when the patients come back to thank you, when your other colleagues um, thank you and acknowledge the, the role you played in the management of your patients. That, that makes you happy. When you have a patient who was collapsed, who was unconscious or who's blind and starts to see again or was unconscious with a stroke and starts to walk again, the joy is just immense. And I don't think there are many things in the world that are comparable to such. Yeah, that is amazing. I'm so glad that you talked about in terms of... Um, well, one, also getting the feedback and also getting the um, courage and confidence because, you know, it's sort of baby steps initially. You fall down a couple of times and then you keep going. And then also seeing people walking on the ward. So I did, um, I did a neurosurgery SSC in med school and then I also did um, a neurosurgery post in foundation years, which was absolutely amazing. But then there's also quite a lot of mortal mortality and morbidity um, in neurosurgery in terms of obviously you know when you like you said earlier when you're going into someone's brain sometimes you don't know what is going to happen on the other side of you know opening opening the brain and that's where the the topic for today's um, podcast yeah, comes from. The brain. Yeah, yeah, that you know you're not the same once the once the air hits your brain. How yeah. Have you have you read that book? Yes, I, I yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I did think so. I did think, oh, she must have read this book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I um, I absolutely, absolutely loved neurosurgery, and um, that's why I did it in in F two. Um, I think another one of the books that I absolutely loved that I read in med school was the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Mm, okay, <laughs> I've not read that one. I've not read that one. Yeah, but that, I've definitely, I've definitely read where air hits the brain, and I can still remember reading it on a bus. Yeah. from Essex into London and just smiling and chuckling all the way because <laughs> I, I found it really amusing. It was a good book. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that, that's really my question. How do you deal with the morbidity um, associated with, with Um, So things have really improved now in neurosurgery. A lot, a lot. Um, so from the years where, and I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm in, um, I do skull base and vascular, which are two um, subspecialties within neurosurgery that were known to be associated with quite significantly high mortality and morbidities, let's say 90 years ago, maybe even up to 50 years ago. But now with microsurgery, with microscopes, with better equipment, lots of trials, there's a lot of evidence-based medicine now. Things have improved a lot. So sometimes, you know, you operate on a brain tumor patient and you tell them, oh, you'll be home within two, three days. Some people find it difficult to believe, but it's true because now it happens. And it's not just based on the neurosurgeon's expertise, it's based on the multidisciplinary team approach. So a good preoperative workup, anesthetic team, um, good nurses, good registrars, good, you know, good physiotherapists after surgery, the better medications now, better equipments. Um, not everything has to be dealt with by opening the head anymore. So there's a lot of radio surgery now. There's a lot of um, endovascular interventional treatments. So things have really improved now. Um, there's still some things that are, um, like you said, associated with that prognosis or that outcomes. Um, and some of these things is regardless of whether you have neurosurgical treatment. A lot of things that cannot really be treated by neurosurgery or maybe with neurosurgery would not have good results. It means that most probably, even without neurosurgery, the results were going to be dire anyway. Um, so 
let's say someone very elderly has a very big brain bleed, it means that whether you operate or you don't, the chances are pretty much the same. So there's some things like that where neurosurgery is still not, um, it's not the do or be all. There's still some things that you can't really fix depending on how significant they are. But overall, um, there was a presentation I did a few months ago and I was looking at some complex brain tumors that were done like in the early 20th century. And the mortality rates were so high. Um, but now you compare them to what we have today when most patients will come in and will go home pretty much days after. So it's much reassuring now. I, wonder, I think it might have been my perspective on these things would have been way different if maybe I practiced in those times when things were really, you know, not as optimal as they are now. But it's so different now because, you know, nine out of 10 times um, you would be doing a good job and getting good results. Yeah, that is awesome. I actually really love that in terms of sort of seeing the evolution in medical practice and where, where we've gotten to um, from the past. And obviously, when it comes to the brain, um, there, are a few, there are a few things that I just wanted to um, talk about in terms of um, people's health anxieties and their worries about about their brains what advice would you give to people who have a headache and think it's a brain tumor um then you've got to speak to the right person um informed knowledge is 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 the best thing I love that. You know? knowledge. yeah that is not yeah because exactly because not not especially now where there's so much you yeah. know everywhere you turn there's a phone and you've got internet access there's a computer you could google some people even say a lot of people are cyberphonic where you you know there's so much um you you just check for unwarranted information on the internet and all that's not so helpful so it's yeah. all about getting the right people to speak to yeah. um and sometimes like i tell my patients i'm like we're doctors we're experts but many times we might not know your body as much as you do. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's okay to be worried. It's okay to want to look up stuff. But the key difference, the key thing is to speak to the right people, to speak to the right experts. So speak to your GP. Let them know. Speak to a health professional let them know and then they can differentiate that a lot of headaches do not need to be worried about you know classification for headaches there's so many types so many types the main headaches that are worrying to the neurosurgeon are the ones associated with brain bleeds which are probably like the worst headache one has ever had in their lives where you feel like you've been hit from the back of the head it's really terrible um you feel like you've been hit with a bat um, and then the other long-standing prolonged headaches that will go on for months and months or even years. If a tumor is not associated with raised pressure in the head, in the skull, or if it's not associated with a bleed, or if it's not associated with a tumor, um, it could be associated with other things. And those are the very common ones that we see, you know, stress, um, different things going on around sometimes even seasonal changes allergic reactions sometimes even the menstrual period depending on what time of the month um, there are many other things that can cause headaches that can trigger headaches um, so it, it's what looking into what causes your headaches and speaking with your gp um, and get reassured once you've had the necessary um, medical charts or investigation um, instead of getting yourself walked up because even getting walked up can make you have more headaches yeah 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 definitely and i think um what you i, I really i'm just going to go back to what you said about you know informed knowledge is so crucial in terms of where we're at now because everybody online is a health expert everybody online is a health coach everybody online sort of has 
their own sort of fads and fallacies about health um, and that obviously then goes ahead to promote um, promote a lot of health anxieties a lot of health anxieties as well um, and just as we are wrapping up now what would you say to so you know with and it's just going back also to sort of race in medicine as well um, and I really like what you said about you know the encouragement that you got in terms of making sure that you're staying professional in everything that you're doing what would you say to people who are quite anxious about about being black in healthcare um, the the famous doctor Mr Selu who um, went to prison for manslaughter and had the convictions expunged because he wasn't he actually wasn't culpable um, did a podcast recently and I was listening to it and you know he said that his son at the time of the trial um, was finishing his final MBBS exams in Manchester and he passed his exams and he said to him he was like you know what dad that I've been thinking about this for a while and with everything that's happened with the way you've been treated um, you did everything right everything right in your power and they still came at you. I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna practice medicine, and I'm not gonna take the F1 job that I've been offered. Um, and up till now, he's still not practicing, even though Mr. Selu has gone back to clinical work. What advice would you give young young black doctors who are in that position, who feel that the medical legal stress and anxieties of medicine outweighs their initial desire that they had to help people? What What would you say to them? Um, oop, that's a, that is a multi, multi-faceted question you've yeah. asked. And I, and I listened to that, um, I listened to that interview with David Selu and you're right. I, I, I even got teary when, when he talked about his son's decision, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that, that did, you know, it, it did, it did, it did strike, strike a chord. Yeah. Um, now how do you, how do you deal with that? I think medicine now is is so medicine has evolved a lot and there are many areas to it not every part of medicine is clinical where you have to do clinical stuff um that's that's one way of looking at it in terms of if you want to be in the medical profession it doesn't necessarily be that you will be in the front line or you'll be you know, in the full fire where the decision making, the really acute decision making, the serious decision making would be um, left to you. That's that's one one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is saying that you know what, speak to as many people as possible before you make um, a definite decision. Because it could be that you get anxious about one particular thing. And then people reassure you and just give you uh, more scenarios to think about things where you get to be encouraged by the things you get to hear about in medicine. Because medicine is not altogether bad. I know, I know David Selu's experience is an experience that I would pray never to have um, because he did look, I don't, I don't even know how he, how he came out of that, you know, with and 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 he he he's still firing on all cylinders you know um after being convicted even um and accused of something that he he did not really do um so 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 it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a tough one to to answer because medicine is not like the other professions where we're not doing it for the money you know it's you're going to medicine purely because of it's 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 the law for humanity that takes you into medicine. Um, but then it doesn't mean that you should not be appreciated, you should not be acknowledged, you should not be remunerated enough. You know, we're humans. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be appreciated, and it's just always good to know. And that's why when people come up to me and I do encourage a lot of young people to try and talk to mentors try and talk to senior colleagues to know as much as possible about the subspecialties or specialties that they want to get involved in because 
you can't know everything 100%, but at least a good amount of knowledge about something would help you to make critical decisions before you get into it. Um, so if there are any anxieties, then the earlier you get to know about it, then you could make amendments or do some slight tweaks, you know, to change it a little bit and say, okay, rather than surgery, maybe I'll do medicine. Rather than go clinical, maybe I'll go non-clinical and I'll do health management. Uh, rather than medicine, maybe I'll just do obzangaini, you know, things like that. So it's as it, it's it's good to get as much exposure to things before before you get into it. I think that's 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 alleviate that. <laughs> That is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that in terms of, you know, getting getting the understanding and, and knowing what it is you want. Um, I definitely come across quite a few people who complain about the specialty that they're in um, and um, feel that, you know, they're not in the right place or they're not enjoying what they're doing. And then I also meet some some young, especially quite a few young doctors who you know, they finished, they finished medicine and they didn't practice one day in clinical, in clinical work at all. They went straight into research or they went straight into um, teaching, you know, lots of, lots of different things like that. And so definitely understand what you, what you like, what you enjoy is, is so crucial in, in giving you the peace of mind that, that we all need to, to be able to live long, um, full and healthy lives. Thank you so, so much, Andrew, for coming on the episode. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. And thank you again. Thanks a lot, Dami, for inviting me on your podcast. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before. Remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician. Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at aslicehealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction.